to explore one of the matriarchs of the 80s someone who may have contributed more to the sound of the 1980s than many other people we may ever talk about on this podcast singer songwriter poet life liver pat benatar (gasps) she is wonderful and fantastic ms benatar herself Get your scrunchies ready, get your neon stretchy pants, get your hair done real big, because on the next episode of 80s High, we are going to rock out with one miss, Pat Benatar. Ah, this topic is a battlefield, yes! (laughs) So excited. That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast where Chris finally gets the assertiveness he needs to give this intro. And a warm, warm welcome to all of the great parts of 80s culture. As I said, I'm Chris. And I'm a shocked and aghast Ben. <laughs> Listen, I'm embodying the spirit of Pat Benatar. She's awakened a new fire inside of me. And I, I said it's my time to take charge. So you know what? You better run. You better hide, Buster. You know, to be fair, it honestly feels like you belong. I feel like we belong here. It's good. <laughs> oh, like, God. Hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day, buddy. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm happy to report that Ben apparently gorged himself <sighs> with all the food and drinks. So hopefully he'll be conscious by the end of this podcast. That's our hope. Look, you got to figure out a way to celebrate somehow. And that's, and you know, food. Food is the way to our hearts. So that's that's what we did. You're not wrong, but also there's another great reason to celebrate because as it turns out, as of this recording, the episode we dropped this past week was about building forts. Oh, yeah. What happened this weekend, Ben? We got a completely unprecedented, like, once-in-a-decade snowstorm in our area. Honestly, once-in-a-decade snowstorm. Yeah. We're well, well over a foot by now, I think. After three days of snow. Definitely reminds me of the snowstorms of the Midwest back, you know, living in Ohio. And I just, I had to wonder, well, first off, have you built any forts, number one? And then number two, can we report that you are recording live from inside your snow fort? (laughs) Uh, I failed. I built a snow goblin, which is if you're terrible at building snowmen, you just do a two foot tall one. And that's a little snow goblin. I see. I was really optimistic, though. I was really delighted to find out that we have a ton of podcast listeners in our neighborhood because I counted no fewer than four snow forts on my block. And what other reason could these families have of building a snow fort than having listened to the podcast, being inspired, and then, you know, building the snow fort in the snow? That's the most logical explanation as to why you saw all the snow forts. Thank you for listening. And uh, we appreciate, you know, your uh, show of support by building your own snow forts out there. No, Thanks, I love everybody. It. Of course, I had, I had to toss up uh, some on our Instagram today because I was just so inspired by seeing them. It was great. That's great. It's wonderful. Did you venture out? Did you go see any snow stuff happening? I wanted to, and then I never made it outdoors. 
I saw videos online of like the big major hill by your place and people were like snowboarding and skiing down it, which was pretty sweet. They did that a couple years ago and I was so jealous and I meant to get out last night in venture, but I ended up getting sidetracked with other stuff. So I never went out and did that. No, it's all good. I have, I had one more, I had one more eighties thing happen this week. I just wanted to share with you. Oh geez. Okay. We were watching the season two finale of Cobra Kai. The episode kicks off and they're all sitting in a homeroom and morning announcements come on and they're they're all like chit-chatting and talking over it. And my partner says, she goes, oh my God, this is like on your podcast. I would like to say that Cobra Kai just lifted from 80s high. Can we make that just a firm announcement? If we want to be litigious as Disney or Nintendo, we could go call them up uh, and get upset about it. I'm going to go find Billy Zabka. I I have words for you. (laughs) What's his name? Johnny? Johnny. Johnny. Yeah. Sorry, Johnny Karate or whatever your name is. Johnny Karate. Apparently, we need to do the Karate Kid on the show. No, no, Johnny Karate is a... uh, Johnny Karate. That's a Chris Pratt had a character on Parks and Rec that was called Johnny Karate. Oh. Yeah. Which now I'm just putting two and two together. It was probably just like a subtle like nod to Karate Kid. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Interesting. Maybe not, but you know, it's a safe assumption. We will get around to doing the Karate Kid saga. I think it's going to be good. Anyway, speaking of homeroom announcements, Yes. Attention 80s high. I'm Becca, here to share today's homeroom announcements. Don't forget that photo day is coming up soon. Pop that collar, heat up your crimping iron, get a fresh can of Aquanet so you can look your best. You can share your rockin' photo with 80s high podcast on Instagram. Today is nacho day. Lunch will be a handful of broken tortilla chips and spicy mystery meat covered with magma hot liquid cheese. The vegetable is buttered corn, and dessert is a pudding pop. Show those jocks and cheerleaders who's really cool by joining the class of 80s high. You'll know topics before they air and can even contribute to a future episode. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80s. Speaking of athletes, the Fightin' Mogwai's women's soccer team is kicking balls and taking names. They're headed to the state finals for the sixth year in a row. The men's team ended the season early after their suspension following the brawl with crosstown rivals, the Terminators. Good luck to the Lady Mogwais. After school today, the AV Club will be hosting a photo exhibit of their work based on the theme, Love is a Battlefield. Head over to the Student Union to check it out. You may be featured. Thank you and have a bitchin' day. Go Mogwais! Look, she spent decades building her career. So this topic this week, we're going to spend a lot of time in history class. So we better book it ASAP. If Pat Benatar is the teacher and we're late, we're in big trouble. So we better (laughs) (laughs) let's run down the hall right now. I want to start off history class with two disclaimers. Yeah. Yeah. Listen up, everybody. Number one. I just want to be very clear. We are not Pat Benatar experts. If you are coming here because you want a expert deep dive into her musical career, her discography, her biography, you've come to the wrong place. But like all of our topics, we've done our research. You know, we're revisiting where she came from, what impact she's made, and hopefully maybe introduce or reintroduce listeners to her music. And so just want to be clear, we are not Benatarologists. Ooh, I like that term. That's fancy. Number two, we cannot get through this episode, Ben, without talking about feminism, mm. sexism, mm-hmm. women power, toxic men, mm. and a patriarchal system tipped away from women. Okay. <laughs> 
all accurate. That's all true. I just didn't know you were going to bust that out top of the show. But okay. It's good. Well, and, and for good reason, I think. Yeah. This is probably going to end up being a largely binary conversation. Gender uh, binary. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to be clear with listeners. We're going to talk in those terms, but we've mentioned it before, and I we, we try to be very transparent about this. You know, we fully support, embrace, stand with listeners of all gender identities. Mm-hmm. So even though we're going to get into these discussions and talk about men and women, we just want to acknowledge that we understand there's more to it than that. But I really feel like any discussion of women forging a path is an acknowledgement that we've gotten to where we are today because, honestly, women like Pat standing up against systems and individuals... You know, this all happened in our lifetime. This happens in our lifetime. It's not like we're moving past this gender binary because we've already solved the binary issues. You know, it's not like in 2021, we're going to be like, great, there's equity, you know, across men and women. So we can just move on and, and tackle the next deal. Right. And then you ta- you pile on other identities and it gets even uh, more problematic even still. And so I just I wanted to be open about that. And I really feel like Pat embodies every bit of the spirit of everyone forging their own path, not taking any flack, being scrappy, and most importantly, telling the dirtbags in your way to clear a path. (laughs) End of disclaimer. (laughs) I love your disclaimers. And I, yeah, the second one, I definitely agree. What Pat Benatar did for music and for uh, equity and, and justice is what Neil Armstrong did to the moon. And to talk about planting a flag on the moon, you can't not talk about how difficult and frustrating it is to overcome gravity and orbit. That's a good framework. I appreciate that. And the other one, too, we're not uh, Benetarologists. Is that what you said? Benetarologists. God, that's such a good term. But we do we do our best. We do our work. We try and do it justice. Uh, you know, go back, listen to the Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer music video. We are not music history majors, uh, but we do our best to give to honor the art and the biography and give it a good time while we do it, too. So awesome boilerplates. This was an exciting and anxious one for me because if you do a podcast about anything, it's really easy to talk about what you know. And it's really easy to talk about what you love. And it's even really fun to talk about what you hate. But Pat Benatar, to be completely transparent, was a complete black hole on my knowledge of the 80s. Once I heard some of her hits again and then I knew that she did those songs. Yeah, you're like, like, oh, okay. Oh, right, Pat Benatar. Yeah. But before, a week ago, if someone said, hey, tell me everything you know about Pat Benatar, I literally didn't have a sentence to follow it because I just didn't know. This, I thought, took, in in a good Benatar sense, took a little courage (laughs) to put ourselves out there. I mean, me me, uh, less than you about a topic really I knew nothing about, but we had such a passionate pitch from a listener to cover it. They're like, you can't do 80s without Pat Benatar. And now having learned so much about her, they were completely correct. You can't have the 80s. You can't have an 80s sound. You can't have an 80s fashion without Ben Benatar. Mm-hmm. So that being said, as we always try and kick it off, who, what, or where is Pat Benatar? You may recognize Pat as a, an arena rocker, singing power chords, tough, gritty sexuality, powerful vocals. But she was a real straight pop rock star under all that. And really, I would say highlight the rock more than the pop. But just off the top of the bat, here we go. Released seven studio albums during the 80s. Five of them went platinum, two went gold. In that same decade, 15 of her singles were in the Billboard Top 40. So you couldn't put on a radio for 20 minutes probably in the 80s without hearing a Pat Benatar song come up. Mm -hmm. In all, 
She sold 10 million albums in the 80s, putting her among the most successful female artists of her entire generation. And lastly, this is nuts. She earned a Grammy for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance four years in a row. 1980, 1981, 1982, 1983, Pat Benatar, Best Female Rock Vocal Performance Grammy. That's amazing. This is insane. And uh, the last little like heads up of just who is this person, some of her hit songs that you may have heard while you're out rock and roll turn on the radio or at karaoke uh love is a battlefield mm-hmm. hit me with your best shot fire away we be- <laughs> we belong invincible i mean some of her mm-hmm. most well-known things as far as the setup before we go back in time to find out what incredible scenario could have burst such a rocker anything else you want to get out? any more any more boilerplates heads up caution signs you want to throw up no i don't think so let's get into it all right Born Patricia May Anzerjewski, born in Brooklyn, New York, January 15th, 1953, raised in Lindenhurst, Long Island. And this is critical. So she was born to a uh, Polish father who was a sheet metal worker, German-English-Irish mother, Millie, who's trained opera vocalist and a beautician. And, and her mother actually quit her career to just raise Patricia and her brother. And this is big because she's a rocker. She comes from a blue-collar family. She has stories, hardships. To sing about. She's the Bruce Springsteen of her gender. That's true. That is really good. So let's see. In the late 60s, while she was attending Lindenhurst Senior High School, she got an early interest in musical theater and choir and singing, probably from her mother. So she was in music theater, playing Queen Guinevere in Camelot. She marched in the homecoming parade, uh, sang in all sorts of things, the Christmas song, a holiday recording in the Lindenhurst Choir. But she had a 4.5 octave vocal range, which is a pretty insane range. It's really That's really more good. octaves than the piano and big. Let's just say that much right now. <laughs> that was only three octaves. Imagine if they had to build a keyboard for Pat Benatar's range. Four and a half octaves of a keyboard. That keyboard would be half again the same size. So she trained at a coloratura with a plan to attend Juilliard. Pretty big deal. But instead, she pursued health education at Stony Brook University. There, after just a year, she dropped out to marry, uh, like another Bruce Springsteen reference, her high school sweetheart, Dennis Benatar, an army draftee stationed at Fort Lee in Virginia starting in 1973. And she worked as a bank teller there. I mean, still not rocking until 1973. Do you know what live musical performance inspired her to get into rock and roll? I don't. She went to a live concert in Richmond, Virginia of Liza Minnelli. Hmm. Okay. And she was like, I want to do that. And so she quit her bank teller job to pursue a career in singing. That's great. That's where it all starts. So she's now, she's out there, she's going after it. How does Pat Benatar become the rocker we know today? So the first gig, she's singing as a waitress at a nightclub called the Roaring Twenties. So second gig was she joined a lounge band called Coxon's Army, who regularly performed at Sam Miller's Basement Club in Richmond. But just a couple years later, 1975, that's the big year for her. I know we're five years away from the 80s, but you got to lay the groundwork. You can't just come rocking right away in the 80s. You got to- You were laying a firm foundation here, buddy. You got to do some pre-work. You're halfway to writing her biography. (laughs) So so Cox's army is taken off. They're doing great. And of course, the band is getting popular. What What do you think Pat does? She quits. She's like, nah, this isn't my thing. Packs up everything she owns. She's got two suitcases, moves to New York with $2,500 in her pocket. Right there is a country song or a rock song, right there. Yeah. Does an open mic night at Catch a Rising Star. She's 27th in line. Doesn't go on stage until 2 a.m. Now, I know in the before times, uh, Chris, you you have been to an adult establishment. 
of some form or another, I'm assuming beforehand. What does a crowd look like at 2 a.m. on the weekend? It's rocking, man. It's rocking? Look, bars are open until 4 a.m. in New York City for a reason. Yeah. They're not, they're not dead at 2 and there's like eight people in there for the remaining two hours. So they're at the peak. I think so. I mean, it's late, but you know. I, don't know. I love it. I think it's more so that she is 27th. So people have sat through yeah. 26 people. You're not paying attention. You're drunk. You're talking to your friends. And then you start hearing from the stage an incredible rock cover of Judy Garland's Rockabye Baby with a Dixie Melody. And everybody starts to get really quiet. And then they all start singing along. The crowd goes freaking nuts. Club owner Rick Newman starts managing her and works with her for 15 years. Uh, she landed a part of Zephyr in The Zinger, an off-Broadway futuristic rock musical, which I hope we can find a recording of, because I want to know what an off-Broadway futuristic rock musical is like. <laughs> Debuts on March 19th, 1976, Performing Arts Foundation's Playhouse in Huntington Station, Long Island, runs for just one month. Now, besides her amazing vocals, we also need to know about the birth of her look, because Pat Benatar had a look. There's a great scene in, um, have you ever seen uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High? I'm actually not. It's okay. So there's there's a scene in Fast Times in a cafeteria where they're talking about the Pat Benatar look. And they, the camera pans around and you notice three different young women who are all dressed in three different phases of Pat Benatar fashion. They're talking about it. So here's where it starts. It's Halloween 1979. Benatar makes a costume based on the sci-fi movie Cat Women of the Moon. Sure. She goes with friends to Cafe Figaro in the village for a costume contest. And she wins. So they're all excited that they won this costume contest from this ridiculous sci-fi movie. So they're like, let's go back to our club, where she performs all the time, Catch a Rising Star, and let's hang out and party. So she does an open mic again to celebrate with her friends about winning this costume contest. And people lose their minds so much over the outfits that she gets a standing ovation in this bar. So the spandex persona just sort of took off. We asked our listeners, do you want to talk about the listeners in fashion? Because our listeners had some thoughts. So yeah, we asked the class of 80s high, hey, Benatar was an incredible fashion icon. Which of her stylish elements do you hope makes an incredible comeback? So this could also fit a bit with contemporary culture. But you know what? We're talking about it now. What do people want? They want big hair, pixie cut, definitely the hair. Yeah, definitely. They're also here for the headbands. We've got a lot of love for the headbands, heels, pleather pants, Striped top, serious blush. She was all about makeup. Yeah, for sure. Dramatic makeup. That came up too. Dark lipstick. And my favorite comment in here, total patitude from head to toe. That's great. That's better than Benatarologist, quite frankly. Patitude. Patitude. That's really good. It's a great look. It is a great look. And she like She pulls it off. She pulls it off. As you look through her live performances and her music videos, like she keeps reinventing it too. And it's not like she's following the wave. She's setting the trend and people are following Pat Benatar. Let's talk about making some music. She's doing really well. So let's press some vinyls. Let's get some eight tracks going. Let's do some cassettes. 1979, her debut album, In the Heat of the Night, is her breakthrough one in North America. Yeah, she's weirdly like super big in Canada, where it reaches number three on the album chart. Hmm. But two singles right off of it Heartbreaker. Yeah. Heartbreaker. Yeah. And We Live for Love. The latter written by a gentleman named Neil Geraldo. Oh, we know Neil. We're going to get to know Neil. So that year, uh, Pat's uh, producer and writer, Mike Chapman, introduced Benatar to Geraldo, an upcoming guitarist. Geraldo began his career the year before, just a year before, as a key member of the Rick Derringer Band after beating out 200 other guitarists for the position. 
Chapman thought that uh, Benatar needed a musical director and a partner who could establish more aggressive sound than those kind of like love ballady kind of things. Right. When they met, they had a really good connection. And we'll get into it with contemporary, but they, they still write and tour today. They became kind of a power couple. But to make that love happen, you know what she had to do? We'll get rid of her first husband she didn't like so much. She had to be a heartbreaker. Mm-hmm. She had to divorce Dennis Benatar at the age of 26, which was pretty rare to divorce at that time. Like in the late 70s, early 80s, like divorce wasn't as common as it was, I guess. Now. I was surprised she both had his last name and kept it. But I know for women especially, once you've established yourself, you're kind of, I don't want to say stuck with that last name, but you're kind of stuck with that yeah, last name. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, 79, she divorces Benatar, and it's also the same year, debut album, of which is highlighted Heartbreaker on it. Come on. You know what? Sometimes the stars are just not aligned, but you know who they are aligned for? Who are they aligned Geraldo. for? Geraldo. Geraldo. Those two are partners in the truest sense. It's amazing. Well, we're going to be talking about them a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, now I'm finally to the decade of the 80s. August 1980, second LP comes out, Crimes of Passion, featuring the signature song... Hit me with your best shot. Bow, bow, fire, fire away. And also a hyper controversial song on that album, Hell is for Children. Oh. Did you read about this at all? No. So this song was inspired. She, Pat had read a series of New York Times articles about child abuse in the United States. Mm. So you've got all these songs about rocking and being strong. And then she does this one about child abuse and when you i don't want to repeat the lyrics because it is heavy but you hear it and that is really sad and the the person who really wanted us to do this topic got really fired up about hell is for children because apparently this artist susan vega in the 90s got a ton of praise for her song my name is luca about the exact Mm -hmm. same topic but benatar did it more than a decade earlier and didn't get as much you know it was it was sort of like uh, it was controversial when it came out and not so much celebrated by bringing attention to an issue well, that's, I, I mean, I, I always praise people who use their power to bring light to a subject. When you first told me that song title, though, I just thought she went to Kroger one weekend to do grocery shopping, and there's just a bunch of brats everywhere. And then she wrote, Hell is for Children. <laughs> She's like, get these monsters out of my way. Rugrats in the aisle, monsters in the produce. Oh, Hell is for Children. Yeah, that's what this is Oh about. my gosh. Screaming kids um, everywhere. So that album actually happened to be her most successful work ever. It peaked at number two in North America and France, uh, four and five times platinum in the USA and Canada, respectively. And Hit Me With Your Best Shot is considered to be her, her best known song. It's a good one. But she didn't write it, though. Did you stumble across its history? No. Do you want to fathom a guess at the origin of Hit Me With Your Best Shot? What scenario might produce a song with that title and lyrics? I have no idea. Good, because it would have been impossible. Eddie Schwartz is the author, and he is a successful producer who worked with Joe Cocker, the Doobie Brothers, Jeff Osborne, and Eddie went, was going to therapy. He was getting some help. He was getting some support. And in one of these sessions, they had everyone attending have a pillow and to just beat the crap out of it, to punch the pillow. And he said while he was walking home from therapy, he was ruminating on punching pillows in therapy. And he was like, ah, you know, I was thinking like, I gotta hit this pillow with my best shot. And he's like, wait, there's something there. There's a song there. And it's, that's that's where it all started, was punching pillows and therapy. So you talked about 82, marriage to Geraldo. Fabulous. 83, uh, she'd established a reputation for singing about tough subject matters. Oh, because this is what I want to go to. Best exemplified by one of the biggest hits of her career, Love's Battlefield. And this is sort of a central idea of Pat in the 80s, and I feel like you'll have a lot to say about this. And this is a bit subjective of myself, of looking back in the 80s, but a lot of 
female-led songs in the 80s and vocalists were about, I feel like, vulnerability. Being afraid to lose a lover in a relationship, talking mm. about the pain of losing a lover, or just sort of being like the – femme fatale is not the right word, but it's like the the vulnerable lady to be taken and rescued sort right. of thing. But Pat's songs were like, no, mm-hmm. this is me. I got this. You can deal with it. Here I go. So you're a real tough cookie with a long history. It's all about like that she can take it and she can triumph over things uh, and treat me right. She's like, appreciate what you have now or she's out the door. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving if you can't live up to what I need. Love is a Battlefield is all about telling uh, you know women to be strong in solidarity. Uh, you better run. You better hide. Yeah, right. You better run. Right. You better hide. Yeah. And she's got two great quotes from this time. And this, and this is really kind of the, the end of my history of her. But she's got this quote. She goes, uh, most chick singers say, if you hurt me, I'll die. I say, if you hurt me, I'll kick your ass. Yeah. I mean, that's Pat right there. And then she also yeah. shared, she shared another sort of like origin. And this goes back to the type sort of family she was coming from. She said, a kid named Joey lived across the street from me once and he'd push snow in my face before school. I could never do anything about it because I was a girl and really small. But after about a week, I got real pissed off. So I had two friends hold him on a slide, and then I punched his teeth out. Oh. <laughs> yes, Pat! I mean, just awesome. She's tough. I was watching some interviews with her, and she just talks a lot about having like a scrappy upbringing. You know, she's like, you had to be scrappy, and you had to kind of fight for what you wanted. And I think that's something that comes a lot from, you know, sort of that working class blue collar background. Yeah, I feel like I have a very similar uh, approach to things and, you know, grew up in sort of a working class family. And there's a little bit to that. You've always struck me as a Pat Benatar. I mean, just straight up. Ugh, this guy. <laughs> no, you know what I mean, though. It's it's a matter of like, you can get by with less. You have to be a little inventive, a little creative, and you have to sometimes do things on your own terms. And she took it in a very strong direction, which I thought was awesome. And, you know, she had another great quote around that time, which is, it's fun to be the bad girl. It's an alter ego I get to play out. It's unpredictable. Mm. I like that. You missed a big piece, though, of Ooh, history that I want to get into. Yeah, yeah. She was the first female solo artist featured on MTV. Right. Yes. So You Better Run, the song I mentioned, You Better Run, she was asked by MTV to make this thing. And she's like, we had no idea what was going on. We just had to make it up as we went along. And her music video was the second ever aired on MTV in 1981. Do you know the first? Uh, is Video Killed the Radio Star, right? Yeah, coincidentally by the Buggles, Video Killed the Radio Star. But right, did you watch her music video? So I have uh, I didn't watch the whole one. In some of the interviews, they were playing clips from yeah. it. But I have to say, for not knowing what a music video would be like, it's really good. Oh, yeah. It's just sort of your classic, like, here's the band on a stage. They're going to play the song and sing. Yeah. Like, it's not some crazy uh, sledgehammer sort of thing. Well, we're going to get into Love is a Battlefield, which is narrative driven. Yeah, right. And something you said about her history is like, you could tell she sort of pulled some of that for the beginning narrative of that music video, which we can talk about in chemistry class. But yeah, that was great. The other thing I just really want to mention in the history piece was a recognition that sexism is still a thing, obviously, but it was more blatant. It was more part of the culture. And, you know, she grew up at a time when gender norms and more importantly, gender roles were much more of a thing than they are now. And she characterized it in several of her interviews as she said, it's either like a music producer or if she was trying to get her song played at a radio station, someone at the station would be like, come sit on my lap and let's let's play that record. Let's make a record. The record labels and the producers 
didn't like that she was married, right? Because it's like, you can't have this bad girl image, this tough woman image and be married. You have to be out on your own or something. And when she was pregnant with her first daughter, uh, they wanted her to hide the pregnancy. Because again, you can't show that because it's bad for your image and that's bad for us. And that's just crazy to me. Do you like uh, like stand-up comedy? I hate comedy. Laughter is a fool's (laughs) medium. I refuse. Laughter is... Uh, superfluous to life. <laughs> Fool's medium. So we in our household love Ali Wong. Have you ever watched the yeah. Ali Wong stuff? Okay. So she had a Netflix special, uh, I think it was Tiger Mother or something like that. But she's like eight months pregnant in that special. Yeah. And she makes lots of jokes about it. But to do like an hour and a half Netflix special to a huge sold out audience, pregnant is yeah. more metal than not pregnant. And so yeah. it's crazy to look at that like today, look back at Pat Better to be like, Doing an outlet, recording an album for hours on end or a live concert, pregnant is way more hardcore and rocker than not being pregnant while doing it. Like, it's really intense. That's a lot of work. That's hard. That's intense. It's exhausting. And a lot of what she sings about and talks about, I just, I love the spirit of it. It's the get out of my way. Again, shoving aside dirt bags and <laughs> having to overcome all of this sexist nonsense that's built into everyday experience for a lot of people and we're not having it. And I love that. So I'm sure we're going to come back to that topic, but just wanted to lay that out because it is a part of the history of who she became and who she actually was. Yeah, it's awesome. That is literally all I have for history class. I'm really excited to get into chemistry and learn about our experiences with Pat Benatar's music and our listeners' experiences. We've got lots of material, so let's just run there. Yeah. Okay, Ben, you admitted at the top of the show that Pat's music is not something that you were immediately familiar with. And so I'm kind of curious, when you started to take in some of the music that she's done and the music videos, what jumped out at you immediately? You said you recognized some of the stuff. I'm curious what that experience was like for you. Yeah, it's a great question. Because again, this is a weird chemistry spin for me, because I don't have childhood stories to tell about this one. This really is like, today, what am I experiencing encountering Pat Benatar? And I mean, first of all, so many of her hits are, I can sing along to them. Not being yeah. familiar with that, I know the lyrics because anytime I've been out at a bar, a restaurant, waiting on hold for customer service, I don't know, <laughs> like definitely loves a battlefield and hit me with your best shot all the time. I don't think I've ever been to a karaoke night where someone didn't do one of those two. Very true. Those songs are everywhere. Yeah. Just this weekend, we watched the Dolly Parton documentary on Netflix. And one of the closing things they say in the Dolly Parton documentary is she's so famous. Her music's so famous that if you've never even owned a Dolly Parton album, you know the lyrics to a bunch of her songs. Like when you hear them, you just start singing. And I thought that way with Pat Benatar's Love's a Battlefield and Hit Me With Your Best Shot. You just know them. They're just part of being alive. Absolutely. So that was sort of my, I would say, my my tippity-top reaction. Okay. Do you have initial reactions before before we get into the the meat and potatoes of it? Yeah. So again, Pat Benatar was somebody that I was aware of growing up. I knew her stuff. I had seen her music videos. So I I had some awareness of her. I know at one point, I was trying to remember when, it could have been late grade school, maybe middle school. I had, I really got into the song We Belong for some reason. Oh. I had a single. 
of We Belong. Oh, like a, like one song on a cassette? Yeah. That was a thing. Cassingle? Oh, man. Cassingle. Come on, Cassingle. And it was usually, you know, the term B-sides was the fact that you had a B-side. So it was like, yeah, you yeah, usually yeah, had yeah. the the one big hit on the A-side, maybe two. And then on the B-side, you know, you had like a... Some throwaway garbage song. Or maybe like a, yeah, bonus track, whatever. Wow. I'm learning so many words today. Beneterologist, patitude... Patitude's great. I, I don't think Beneterologist is a real word. Not yet. Yeah, so that's a fair point. The other one is the iconic Love is a Battlefield. This is the music video I think everyone remembers the shoulder shimmy. Oh, so good. Or as somebody in the YouTube comments had on the videos watching Power Shimmy. I was like, oh, it is such it a is, power it shimmy. It is a power shimmy for oh sure. Oh my gosh. That move is what I always associate with Pat because it's just like, it's defiant, it's confident, and she's got her, all her backup dancers are doing it. And I can't wait to talk about that music video. It's a, it was so great. Uh, but those are the, the two really big standouts. Like you had mentioned, like most of the songs we've talked about so far are ones that I'm mostly familiar with. You know, I've heard before. Yeah. We asked our class of 80s high what songs were their favorites. Sure did. Uh, and we had, we had two thirds of all of our respondents say, hit me with your best shot. That was a big one. A third said, love is a battlefield. Mm-hmm. And then about a fifth said, invincible. Yeah. And that's a newer song, right? That's one of her newer ones. Yeah. But because they put us into the pressure to do this episode, we went back to the person who begged us to do Pat Benatar for 80s High and asked them, what's your favorite Pat Benatar song? Mm. And you're going to hear some of the passion of why this topic had to come to fruition on our show. So listener Andrew, he was the inspiration for this episode. And here's what he had to say. Uh, it's hard to pick just one song uh, out of Pat Benatar's catalog, but if I had to, I'm going to go with Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Um, that's the kind of song where when you put it on, uh, you just got to crank the windows down in your car uh, and exceed the speed limit. It is just a fantastically driving, rocking tune. She has incredible vocals on it, guitar riffs, the drum beat behind it. It's just a quintessential rock tune. I most associate that song with uh, actually roller skating in the 80s. So uh, when you're 13 or 14, uh, you can't drive, not a lot of places for you to go. So you have your mom uh, drop you off at the roller rink. And I can just remember skating around in a circle to disco lights uh, to hit me with your best shot pounding through the speaker. So that's my past memory of hit me with your best shot. But I think that song has a lot of relevance still today. It's a love song or it's a song about relationships. But it's really a song about self-confidence, and it's a really a song about standing up to whatever's thrown your way, getting back up, and taking what comes next. And I think that's just as relevant today, maybe even more so than it was in the early 80s. And I think it applies to things beyond relationship, to your work, uh, to your career, to your life goals. Uh, and the way Pat, uh, I think, empowers people through that song uh, is just a tremendously powerful statement for people to be taking to heart today. So that's great. I mean, Andrew's 100% right. The confidence that she exudes, the assertiveness, the in-your-face kind of defiant attitude. I'm not putting up with your garbage. Oh, yeah. It's a good song. Such a good song. Oh, yeah. Now, when we talked about Sledgehammer, one of my takeaways from Gabriel Sledgehammer was, uh, I told you, like, I I wish I just had a playlist, like a screen playing in my house of just music videos, because it made me miss music videos as an art form, because we just hear... Spotify playlists and Pandora playlists, but you don't see the music videos anymore. Right. And so going through the Benatar catalog, although she was not necessarily known for a mu- as a music video producer, as some bands are. Right. I was having, was having a blast. And I know you've been itching this whole episode. You've said like 17 times at least, I can't wait to talk about this music video. Do you want to get into some music videos? 
Not 17 times. Okay, 18. 20, 18. 23 times. 23, 23 times. <laughs> 23 times. The same number of Grammys I think she has is how many times, which is like a billion. So Yeah, I okay. I wanted to rewatch Love is a Battlefield because I haven't watched, as you said, music videos in a long time. Certainly hadn't seen this one. And so I was like, gosh, we can't get into this episode and I not just revisit it. I can't go on my memories alone. And oh my God, I was getting like all emotional just watching <laughs> it because I, I loved the like the women power, the just like the femininity of it and the I'm not putting up with your nonsense spirit of it. And so this is, like I said, a very story-driven plot. And it actually starts off with a young woman. She's leaving her home. She's either like kicked out or she's leaving on her own accord. Well, she's kind of storming off because the dad's like, if you leave, you never come back. It's like the classic right, dad right, thing right, to right, yell right, at the right, daughter. Right. And she waves to her younger brother who's like looking down from the window and she's gone. And she goes to New York, which is kind of her story that you mentioned. She quit that job and or the band and she's like, I'm going to New York. So that's where it starts off big eyed in the big city, right? Trying to fit in. People yeah. are pushing her around and she ends up at this nightclub, dance club. Right. And you just, it's very subtle, but you just see these guys like pulling women onto the dance floor. Right. You know, they touch them on the shoulder, touch them on the hand, or grab their hand, I should say, touch them on the elbow or whatever, and just pulling them up there. And at one point, some guy pulls her up and she's dancing with like, no, she's not into it. It's not like, feeling it. Nope. You might as well be dancing with a robot. Like she was just sitting there looking off and... Finally, she's kind of had enough. She pushes it away. And there's a villain guy in there. And this is like classic villain. He's wearing like... He's so sleazy. He's such oh a scummy, greasy slime ball. It's almost uh, like John Travolta's character. You know, when he's doing the dance, the staying alive, it's like a white suit, but he's got like the black shirt underneath, but with right. a white vest. Right. Greased and, back hair, straight oh, back. Oh, yeah. Slick back, greasy Maybe hair. Maybe a gold oh. tooth, hard to tell. I mean, he's, he's oh, a Oh, it's a gold tooth. He's a dodgy character. It is a character. gold <laughs> tooth, for sure. And he tries to dance with her and finally she's had enough and she pushes him away. And then like all the women get up and they start to do this rally. And that's where this signature shoulder shimmy, the power him? shimmy. How do they scare uh, him? A dance off, of course. Of course, with the power shimmy. It's so great. Again, defiant in your face. We aren't going to take it. And the best part is, so they're doing this whole dance. Like the women unite and they're like kicking butt and they're just dancing at these men. And then the, the villain guy tries to dance with her on her terms. Right. So it's almost like he's acquiescing. He's like, I'm going to dance with you. And she throws a drink at his face. Right. It's so awesome. good. Ah. It's almost like, oh, I'll play your game if that's what it takes. And she's like, I said no, sir. I, <laughs> I say no oh. to you. Freaking fantastic. I was cheering during that part. And then they take the dance out onto the streets. So good. The final end of it, the women just kind of had this moment of like togetherness. It's like hugs, there's a moment. There's thumbs a, up. There's a fist bump. There's a fist bump. I was like, I don't remember. Th- I didn't think fist bumps were a thing back I then. I know. They started, Pat, did Pat Benatar invent the fist bump? <gasps> the Obamas, oh move God. aside. <laughs> God, she's so cool. Just the, the energy of it and you just, it was authentic and raw and I loved it. It was so good. I love that music video so much. Yeah, and I don't have the exact quote, but there was someone where Pat talked about this song where she was like, this is another of her like raw, harder subjects where like at the mm-hmm. time there's been a ton of music that's like how great love is and beautiful love is or how heartbreaking it can be to lose a love. And she's like, no, love is work. Like you're going to fight with your partner. You're yeah. sometimes going to lose. You're going to win some, but like love is work. It is hard. It is cool. Yeah. It was sweet. What I really liked about Pat, she's a really raw, powerful voice. Yeah. She's a powerhouse. And what's crazy is I've heard her sing recently, and it's a little bit raw, but it is still 
powerful. Like she has not thrashed her pipes. She still sounds really freaking good. She can still hit the notes. It's great. Two music videos I really want to touch on. One quickly, one a little more. Yeah. We Belong. It feels like the 80s condensed into three and a half minutes. It. I mean the... Oh my god. And like that part is so 80s. The, that the camera got Vaseline on the lens, so everything's a little fuzzy oh, and Oh, it's like Halo-y. Yeah. Oh. It looks like the music video has been shot on November 1st after a house has been TP'd on Halloween. It's it's all just like white toilet paper and bed sheets, and you're just catching glimpses of them as they've got an industrial fan blowing at all of them. Obviously. It is oh, so, good. so 80s dreamscape. And like her eyeliner, there's more black eyeliner than there is whites of her eyes. It's just, it's so 80s. It's great. I love it. And it takes a crazy fantasy turn at the end where there's a choir of children singing in a fantasy lake. It gets real weird. Tell me, man, that Kasingle, I was rocking that Kasingle. A little Chris was um, loving it. But the music video discovery that I love the most of hers was Shadows of the Night. Which So I went from We Belong, which is like this 80s dreamy, uh, you know, Halloween toilet paper romp. And you've got um, Love is a Battlefield, which is a good story, but it's like a very common every person story, like country mouse, big city, going to make it happen, fight for yourself. If someone didn't know, are you going to say she's taken this video in a different direction? This video goes a completely different direction. So it opens okay. with her like a Rosie the Riveter. She's even got like the redhead bandana on and she's working in a factory. And she's wearing like the blue jumpsuit kind of a thing, yes. right? Yeah. This four minute story turns her into a special agent in World War II. I love it. Where she and a group of buddies fly over to Germany, Nazi Germany, undercover, sneak into some headquarters, and blow the place up with like an old-timey dynamite bomb on it. Like a giant TNT wrapped together. Yeah. yeah. She never sings a single lyric. You don't see her mouth move. It is all like a World War II Nazi attack. With this song over it. And she has sort of an Amelia Earhart look when she becomes the... Right. She's a pilot, right? She's like flying an airplane. She's got, like the, an old she's got the brown leather bomber jacket. She's got the white like Snoopy scarf that flaps out. You know, if she's Rosie the Riveter in the first part, I feel like in that middle part where she's flying the plane, she's totally Amelia Earhart. Oh, yeah. It is a little bit of a Jacob's Ladder thing at the end where she does wake up back in the factory and she's been dreaming about this assault on Nazi Germany the whole time. When I'm at work and I'm just sort of bored, I often fantasize about going back into history and, and, you know, fighting World War II villains. Well, in history class, that's what you're supposed to do. We talk about all these music videos that we love. But again, the person who fought for Pat Benatar, who fought so hard for so many others, Mm. has some strong opinions on her music video action and her contribution to the music video industry, if you will. So let's hear it again from Andrew. You can't talk about rock and roll in the 80s without bringing up MTV. And I'd submit to you that MTV was actually the first content platform where people were creating chunkable forms of entertainment uh, that was available to the masses. But what's so cool about Pat Benatar and music videos in the 80s is how she really evolved as people began to understand what that platform could really do. So you look at her first video, You Better Run, and it was kind of standard fare for what was playing at M- you know, on MTV in the very early 80s when it started, right? It was her uh, in a warehouse uh, fronting her band playing in an empty set. 
And I think Pat really understood the power of MTV to tell a story through her music. So if you move ahead a couple years and you look at Shadows of the Night, it's a completely different way of approaching a music video. So she's really there embracing the storytelling uh, behind the song. And the video involves her uh, as Rosie the Riveter in World War II kind of fantasizing about getting involved in the war effort uh, in a much more personal way. And it evolves into her leading a squadron behind German lines to blow up a German uh, headquarters. Aside from the fact that there are cameos by Bill Paxton and Judge Reinhold in that video, it's just a really fantastic example of how she morphed with what MTV could become and was becoming to really create a whole new way of entertaining you uh, with not just her song, but with a tremendous visual expression of what that song could mean. So yeah, you and I haven't touched that before when we talked about Sledgehammer again, where like MTV was sort of like the original content platform where people were creating stuff for that platform for the mass audience. Mm-hmm. And I love that we both connected on the Shadows of the Night uh, World War II <laughs> music video. It's such great storytelling. It's so fun. It's awesome. And like you said, it's a unique path. It's not one of those retreads of a common story no. in a music video. As an aside note, I have a friend who's sort of like a big World War II buff especially he's really into planes. And so I sent him this video and he's like, I've never seen this before. This has made my week. This is so good. That's great. He loved it. He was a huge fan. She's an icon. So there's a lot of contemporary culture. Uh, We're going to have to hit up the cafeteria. And let's maybe have a dance off. Yeah. And we should probably go quickly. So I would recommend uh, you better run. Or we can just power shimmy down to the lunchroom (laughs) and then just intimidate everyone to get out of our way. It's head of the line. Let's power shimmy. Let's do that. I loved seeing everyone's reaction to the cafeteria when we fist bumped. Apparently, no one had seen that before. So that was exciting. Yeah, it's wonderful. So they always say imitation is the best form of flattery. And Pat's songs have been covered so much. Kelly Clarkson, Carrie Underwood, Avril Lavigne, CeeLo Green. Interesting. And even Alvin and the Chipmunks have covered her. Wait, she's saying F you? <laughs> yeah. Baby, try to tell me the girl I know, and I'm like, forget I'm- you. Yeah, that's Pat, that's Pat Benatar, I think. Wow, that's great. Like we said, not real music historians. Uh, and even Lil' Kim and Pitbull have sampled her tunes in the stuff they've done. That's interesting. Well, I have to say this. One of the clips that I watched was Pat and Neil on Oprah. Oh. And they were doing Love is a Battlefield and Avril Lavigne came out and they duetted to Love is a Battlefield and it was amazing. That's awesome.
Canadian rocker Avril Lavigne was very much in the same spirit of Pat Benatar, of just a very yeah. independent, do-it-yourself, define yourself, do-what-you-want right. kind of person. I think they're two peas in a pod. That's an awesome duet. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Absolutely. And she even acknowledged that Pat and other women like her were really forging the way so that she could have the career she has now because they've laid such a foundation and a path for, for young artists. And I thought that was awesome. Oh, yeah. So one and two decades after her highlight time, between 1999 and 2018, a big name artist covered her song every single year. Wow. Uh, let's talk about VH1. You remember VH1 pop-up video? Uh, she's ranked number 66 on VH1's 100 Sexiest Artists. She's ranked number 74 on VH1's 100 Greatest Rock Artists. And ranked number 39 on VH1's 100 Greatest Women of Rock and Roll, which uh, I didn't see the whole list, but I feel like she should be higher than 39. I mean, of all of history, 39 doesn't sound terrible, but I take your point. Yeah. Like, it feels like she has more of an influence. She's one of these people that have such a big influence, but they don't, for some reason, rise to a level of a Cindy Lauper or a Madonna, even. You know, you, you think of these women who everybody knows outright. Like, you can't not live in this country and not at least know who Madonna is. Right. But you could, you know, you could not technically know who Pat Benatar is. That's me. For instance, exactly. And so for some reason, she didn't quite get to that same level, yet she had such this massive influence. It's just slightly below radar. Let's go through where she crops up a little bit after her, after the big musical chunk. So right in the middle of it, 1982, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. There's a big starring character in it. Pat Bernardo is based after Pat Benatar. Hmm. Uh, in 2002, jumping two decades ahead, her and her husband, Neil Geraldo, they appear on an episode of That 80s Show. Did you ever try watching that? I was never into That 70s Show, so I certainly didn't want to watch That 80s Show. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed That 70s Show, but I never carried into That 80s Show. But they appeared on it. August 11th. Hey, what did you do August 11th last year? Did you celebrate? Did you do anything? I'm going to have to say no. Because... It's Pat Benatar Day! <laughs> Started in 2002, Pat Benatar Day is celebrated in Babylon, New York. She was presented with the key to the city. She can go wherever she pleases she can now. go wherever she pleases. Got a big deal. That's right. So 2003, that was the next time she released an album since 1997. That was in Namarata. And that's her last album, right? That's the last album. And it's notable because it has a, a single on it uh, for 9-11. 
So two years after 9-11, mm. Christmas in America is a bonus track on that. That's notable. Mm. So We Belong, we talked about that song several times in this episode. It shows up in Pitch Perfect 2, Deadpool 2, and Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. <sighs> I wanted you to say Talladega Nights 2. We were on a, like a sequel oh, that would have been progression so there. It would have been so good. Would that be Talladega Days? Talladegas, I think is what it is. Like day would be capitalized? Yeah, right. No, That's, okay. what All right. That's what it is. All right. All right, Will Ferrell, make <laughs> the, it happen. The Enamorata of Ricky Bobby. 2008, she's inducted as she should have been into the Long Island Hall of Fame. Uh, and 2011 is a really big year. And I highly recommend uh, anyone who's into rock and roll, getting the real story, go on Amazon, pick this thing up. But she publishes Between a Heart and a Rock Place, a memoir. I love it. It's great. Heart and a Rock Place. So good. Uh, talks about her battles with a record company, Chrysalis, difficulties that her career caused in her personal life, and of course, feminism. Uh, and she's got a great quote in it. For every day since I was old enough to think, I've considered myself a feminist. It's empowering to watch and to know that, perhaps in some way, I made the hard path women have to walk just a little bit easier. I had that same quote. Oh! You started reading it, and I was like, okay, good. Because I didn't have the first part, and I was like, oh, this is great. I got a different quote. And then you're like, it's empowering to watch. No! No, it's such a great message. I love it. You know, sometimes memoirs are not that great. You know, like people may live wonderful, incredible lives, but maybe aren't really good capturing it or talking about it. But the book went on to become a New York Times bestseller. So it's a good read. Well, first off, it's got a great title. It's a great title. I feel like every great biography has to have a fantastic title. No, so good. There's only two I think that are better. Wait, what would those be? Do you know Corey Feldman's? Um, No, I think I do. It's... My Little Gremlins. It's not My Little Gremlins. Neat. It's choreography. Oh, that's really good. So Actually, good. that's really so good. good. But the best of the best. Huh. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you know his? Um, it's a triple entendre. A tri- oh my God, what? Yeah. Uh, ter- okay. Think of a name of one of his movies. Well, obviously. Terminating the Predator Within. So it's True Lies. No, just kidding. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Total Recall. So it's Recalling His Life. Yeah, Recalling His Life. Total Recall is one of his greatest movies. Yep. Uh, so I'm missing a third reference. This one's more subtle, but when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, you may not remember this, though. We all know that he has mostly built up the iron in his body from eating the breakfast cereal total. He's a cereal magnate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, he actually got into office as governor of California by a recall vote. Oh, duh. Yeah. I forgot yeah. about the recall vote of that. Okay, that is really good. That is pretty ingenious. But for Pat, obviously, between a heart and a rock place, so it's fantastic. Good. So I've only got two things left on contemporary culture, but you were struggling to remember a variety of Chris's in the beginning of the episode. <laughs> so many Chris's. And who was the proper Chris that you you were looking for? Pratt. Chris, Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt. What is the, one of the most famous characters Chris Pratt has recently played in cinema? Sorry, really quick. His memoir needs to be called Pratt Falls. Okay, go. <laughs> Uh, do it, Chris. Do it. Uh, it's good. So what, what was one of his biggest roles recently? <sighs> I don't remember the character's name. It's in the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's not Moon King. Star-Lord. Yeah, yeah Star-Lord. Yay. Star-Lord. That's right. So when you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, first of all, great soundtrack. But it has a great soundtrack yes. because his character is Peter Quill. Peter Quill's mother, before succumbing to cancer, gives him this mixtape that's all this awesome music from the late 70s and 80s. His ship is called, Peter Quill's ship is called the Milano. Which is a great Pepperidge Farm cookie. 
such a good yeah because he loved Pepper's Rice Cookies. No, um, because he had an obsession with his character had an obsession with Alyssa Milano from Who's the Boss. Now in Avengers Infinity War, the Milano crashes and is beyond repair, and he gets a new ship that's just like the one before, but even better, and it's called the Benatar. What? Yeah, oh, that's so good. So I, I, that was my favorite contemporary culture call out for Pat Benatar. I miss that. That's fantastic. Now we've come to the point of the show, the thing in contemporary culture I'm going to mention, which is the whole reason our listener fought to have her as a subject on this show. Class of 80s High member Andrew. Member Andrew. Uh, because there is a massive injustice with Pat Benatar, which is pretty, it's pretty shocking when I learned this. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, perhaps. Perhaps. It might have been from our home state. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Of Ohio. It might be situated in one Cleveland. Did you ever go up to it? You know, I rarely went up to Cleveland. We mostly stayed kind of central southern Ohio, so I didn't really get up that way too much. I went once, but I was too young to remember anything from the experience. Yeah. So I don't remember what all's in there, but I do know one thing that's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And that's Pat Benatar. So in 2019, she was nominated as the fan's choice among three other people, one of which you're going to be really upset about. So Soundgarden, uh, one person we covered in depth on our last episode, Notorious B.I.G., and someone else got nominated who didn't make it in, who you, I think, are a little familiar with. Oh, I think I heard this in the clip. Dave Matthews Band. Dave Matthews Band. Yeah. All nominated fan's choice didn't make it in 2019. I want to know who beat out this fantastic list of people you just said. This person better be amazing. Okay, hold on. I'm fired up. I am Pat Benatard right now. I'm just, I'm get, I'm doing a power shimmy. You guys can't see it right now. I'm just going to show up at Cleveland. You better run. You better hide. Man, I got the fire in me. Well, while Ben is looking, I just want to say one of the things that I forgot to mention earlier and that I love about Pat is that... You know, she's often been mentioned as kind of like a, a sex symbol and a sex icon, as well as like her fashion and her badass attitude. And she just said this great thing about sexuality. And she said, you, it should be used, but she, it shouldn't be defined or confined. And a lot of people wanted to put her in a box for what it meant to be a female artist that had this kind of, you know, sexuality to her dancing and her performance. And I just love that she said, you should use it. It is a power that you have as a performer. But don't define it. Don't confine how I express myself. And I saw this. This is, I think, from her 1983 MTV interview. She's like, if I want to be feminine, that's great. If I want to be androgynous, that's fine. Be yourself. I want to be myself. And again, I just think it's a great message. I loved it. Very empowering message. No, I dig that. Did you find out who this monster was that got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019? Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, class of 2019. We've got seven inductees. Uh, the Zombies, Roxy Music, Radiohead, Stevie Nicks, Janet Jackson, which is deserving, but amazing it took this long. Def Leppard and The Cure, also big. I mean, these are pretty, you know, reasonable. The Zombies? Uh, yeah, The Zombies, we could talk more about. I'm not familiar. I don't even know who that is. Yeah, I, I, I would have to do a little listening on that one, too. I'm, a, I'm sorry for all the Zombies fans who are listening who are losing their minds right here's now. My, here's my thing. If I don't know who the Zombies are, they don't deserve to be there. When you said zombies, you know I actually thought of as a cranberries because they had that song zombie. Oh yeah, zombie. zombie. Talking about another badass woman who. Oh yeah. Is going to stand up for what's right and not put up with guff. Now this is crazy. Uh, if that didn't upset you enough, the timing on this is insane. 
So I introduced this topic to you uh, as our next topic uh, last Sunday, which would be February 7th. Today is Valentine's Day, the following Sunday. In the middle of last week, on February 10th, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced the nominees for 2021 to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She's not on the list. Pat Benatar is not on that list. What? What do you think if you were a fan choice the previous year, you should be in top consideration for this year? Ohio, what are you doing? Seven studio albums in the 80s, five of them platinum, two were gold. 15 singles in the Billboard Top 40 in the 80s, 10 million albums in the 80s, four Grammys. In one freaking decade. She's also been touring all the way up to 2019. Like, she's toured this entire time. However this works, all I hope that we're putting out into the inter-ethers is that this podcast episode becomes part of the application to have her in the Hall of Fame. Because, come on! I support it. Now, we've brought up the issue, but we're going to hear one more time from our listener, Andrew, who really lays out the case of why Pat should be in the Hall of Fame. A lot of people are really surprised to hear that Pat Benatar is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They expect it's just a given. She's a fantastic musician. She wrote great songs. She was definitive of music in the 80s, and yet she's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a travesty. It's a black eye on the hall. Uh, And I'm going to give you three reasons why she absolutely needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just take the number of albums that she sold out of the equation. Look at those songs like Hit Me With Your Best Shot, Heartbreaker, Treat Me Right. Those are songs that still stand the test of time today. I guarantee you if you play those songs on your iPod or your radio uh, or YouTube right now, you're going to find yourself tapping your foot because they are driving emotional rock and roll to the core songs. Second, she's an absolute trailblazer. Music industry in the 80s, incredibly tough for women to break into and incredibly tough for women to create their own path. It's not to say there weren't women who did that. You've got Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, but they had a bit of a punk niche for them. Certainly Stevie Nicks in the 80s, but she had the background of Fleetwood Mac to kind of carry her and use that leverage into her solo career. Uh, or bands like Heart, which really came to prominence in the 70s uh, and were able to navigate the rock world in the 80s, but they had each other to kind of support one another as they were navigating that environment. Pat Benatar is out there fronting a rock band on her own in the 80s. It's an absolute testament to her will, her fortitude, and her ability to persevere through all that and just create magical, fantastic rock. And the last reason is the fans absolutely want it. So in the fan vote this year for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Pat Benatar came in second to Dave Matthews. Dave didn't make the hall either. Uh, But the fact that there are thousands upon thousands of fans who want to see that recognition for Pat uh, is reason enough that the Hall of Fame celebrate her and induct her. I love it. He's made a passion pitch. It is well articulated. It is a three-point pitch, which I love. A plus. A plus. And speaking of homework, (laughs) since the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has snuffed Pat twice in recent years, maybe we need to go and help land a case of does this hold up or not in math class. I think so. Let's show our work. Before I get into my own opinions, I want to talk about our listeners. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we asked the class of 80s, hi, when you hear Pat Benatar's music, come on. Yeah. When you're out at a bar, when you're driving in your car, when you're on your Peloton bike and a song comes on, we'll do a little tennis here. We'll go back and forth reading these memories. But just how powerful 
the nostalgia is with Benatar's music is great. Uh, so someone just says, brings me back to the swimming pool in the summer when I was a kid. Great times. I feel like this could be a montage in season four of Stranger Things. Like we mentioned that show all the time, but it's so true. Like, yeah. you know, season three, I think it was season three, they were at the pool a lot. And it just felt like summer. Like this is what's playing when it's either Adult Swim or whatever. And you're just sitting out by the poolside. Oh, yeah. Rocking out to some tunes. The next listener says, I always think of the episode from The Office when Kelly sings We Belong in karaoke. Have you seen this episode? I only started watching The Office with my first job out of college where I was in a cubicle. And I was like, okay. oh, empathetic television. So it's been a little while. So this is great. Kelly's singing it to Ryan and she's singing We Belong. And the best part is she's like, we belong together, Ryan. And she looks at him because she's always <laughs> pining for Ryan. And he's kind of like stringing her along. It's really funny. If you, if you know the show, it's so great. This person said, also, I have memories of watching the Love is a Battlefield music video and enjoying the dancing. Of course. Totally agree, as we know. No, you not. I feel like I have forgotten that I took our own survey this week because the last one of the responses is uh, one of those artists where I didn't realize just how massive she was at the time. That was me. Where I was like, yeah, now that I've done a week's worth of research, it's incredible. Like, uh, how did I not know who Pat Benatar was before this? She's here. Did you mess up the curve by taking our quiz? I think did I you did. just I throw all, the curve? I threw all the uh, numbers off. So this is another good one. I have a record, and this person has put that in quotation marks because they're like, this is a legit it's a LP vinyl. Get on album board. Yeah. vinyl. Absolutely. I love it. I have a record with a bunch of great 80s jams, and it features a Pat Benatar song. I listen to that record a lot. And um, I think this might be Andrew, because he mentioned this in one of his audios. Somebody says, roller skating on Saturday nights. Just being at the roller rink in the 80s, neon glow, Pat Benatar's on. Between the public pool and those, yeah, the roller rink, it's like the music nostalgia of those places. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, listener Jules had this to say. I reenacted the Love is a Battlefield shimmy repeatedly as a seven and eight year old. Awesome. I feel you, Jules. The power shimmy, right? The power shimmy. Power yeah. shimmy. I, I think we all need to adopt that term. It's so good. Power shimmy. In 2014, I saw her at the Tulalip Outdoor Stage with Rick Springfield, another 80s classic. What? Security let me stand up against the stage for her set, and she high-fived me mid-song. Whoa! We have physical oh. contact with Pat Benatar. Wait, did you just make a Ghostbusters reference? Actual physical Actual contact. physical <laughs> contact with Pat Benatar. That's awesome. Jules says, one of my favorite concert experiences ever. Emoji with the hard eyes, 100%. She still kicks ass. That she does. She's still out there performing. I think she would have been touring in 2020 if it wasn't for the pandemic, because 2019, she was on the streets. Right, singing. right. Um, I do have it a goal is to try and 50% of our episodes work in um, Pat Oswalt. So <laughs> on one of his live albums, Pat has a great story about performing at the Tulela Casino. Yeah. Resort and Casino. It's one of my favorite bits he does. You have to listen to it. So at least I know a little bit of what that scene is like. It's great. This was like such a fun experiment of doing something courageously, boldly, being inspired by Pat of what she really stands for and just going out and going for it. Where I literally have a spreadsheet of 200 topics I love and can't wait to talk about on this to do something I know nothing about. And coming out on the other end of it, 110% does she still hold up. Not only is her music catchy, and it's just still fun in general to listen to her music, but so much of her message is so important and so contemporary mm -hmm. with issues we're still facing today. And I, I don't want to get really detailed with examples to be so heavy, because that is not the point of our show to be really heavy, it's to be fun. But feminism and justice and equality and strength, individualism, courage are 
threads we see fighting in the human existence every day. Yeah. Uh, and especially the things that Pat has talked about in her lyrics and in, in her life. 30 years ago, that was a huge big deal. Today, the message is just as important and just as as relevant. Almost hasn't aged a day. <laughs> right. And so more than a lot of the things we've covered on this show, I think it's extremely relevant and really holds up. 100% agree. Because this is math class. I want to go more by some numbers here. Yes, please. Just I'm going to show our work because, you know, again, this is part of our passion pitch to the dirtbags who run the Cleveland Hall of Fame. <laughs> How many albums, Ben? Five were platinum, two were gold in the 80s. 15 singles. In the Billboard Top 40 in the 80s. In the Billboard Top 40, more numbers. Okay. How many records has she sold? I think it's like over 20 million. 10 million just in the 80s. I think it's like, I think it's over 20 million. Oh, yeah. Like to date, or at least sometime in the, you know, mid 2010s. Okay. Four best female rock vocal performance Grammys, four in a row. Second video ever to be featured on MTV, first by a female solo artist. Right. This feels like one of those like uh, corporate infographics. Like we need like all the pat numbers on the Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. The last bit of math. I looked this up. She's 68. She's still rocking. Like I said, pipes, not thrashed. She's still belting it out like a pro. And the last number, she's toured up to 2019, as I mentioned. Hold on. She's 68. I'm doing the math right now. Can you hear the clickety clack? I can hear it. That's so good. Let me hit the compute button. Oh, 2000% relevant. Okay. (laughs) This is what I love about Pat. She knows what she wants. She's not afraid to go for it. You know, she could easily be, I guess, falling for what you might call this American, I feel like an American trap of rugged individualism where you have to do everything on your own. Mm. I put myself by my own bootstraps. I don't need anyone else in my life. It's all me. I did everything. Mm -hmm. And that's garbage. It's BS. And it's (laughs) frankly not. It's not true. It's not true. Like nobody is successful on their own. We are a society. We are social creatures by our very nature. And what I love about her, she's not afraid to do all that, but also she's not afraid to say, I want a companion. I want a lifelong partner. You know, in like the early 80s, she was like, I want, you know, I want to have kids. I want to be a mother. And she was perfectly at ease doing that while still also having this persona of, I'm not going to take any crap. Get out of my business. Yeah. And that's great. I love that. It's life on her own terms. She's bold. She has guts and guile. And I feel like she's an inspiration to all people. She fought for feminism, but I really, I mean, I really truly believe her message is for all gender identities for anyone out there to strive to be your true self and to have true self-expression. And for that, Pat, you're a badass. I love it. Andrew, listener, thank you for suggesting this topic. Yes. This was definitely something that was in our blind spot and needed to be covered. Learned a lot, inspired, a great suggestion. Class 80s high. If you've ever got something you're really passionate about that you think we should cover on this show, you know where to hit us up. Give us a pitch. 80s high podcast at gmail.com. Give us a pitch. Make a case. You keep listening to us for a reason and you keep taking our quizzes. Like I thought three quizzes in everyone would be like, why am I doing elective homework? Like this is extra credit I don't need to do in life. Yeah. Y'all still doing it. So clearly you're connecting with it. Let us know if you're like you dum-dums somehow got 11 episodes in and haven't talked about this. Cancel culture. Get rid of 80s high. <laughs> These guys are jerk bags. Let us know. We want to know. We want to know. We want to hear from you. So thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time oh, on no, 80s you high. Stop it. <laughs> you 
You, how dare you? How dare you skip over Goodbye, the most Goodbye, everybody. We, we've hit everything we need to talk about. It's like you were just at a child's birthday party and they were like, okay, time to bring out the cake. And you just turn the lights out and you're like, party's over. No, it's cake time. It's cake time. This is great. Actually, that was an unintentional, perfect setup for my topic. Okay. So, Ben, do you miss, and maybe this is very relevant based on this ginormous meal you just had, do you ever miss all of the energy that you had as a kid? Well, and I'm asking this knowing that you are a very high energy 30 something. So I'm acknowledging that for sure. Not too long ago, I brushed off a VHS tape that had been recorded for a friend's birthday party in like freshman year of high school that we all like recorded to like wish her happy birthday. Please tell me there's a hyperactive bin in there. And my energy today, as you know me, I'm not even exaggerating is like at 50%. Of like high school Ben. I was bonkers off the wall energetic. Was it too much energy, would you say, or in retrospect? For sure. At the <laughs> time I was like, this is perfect, this is just what I should be, like vibrating all the time. Well, okay, so maybe you're not the great example of this because you're you're probably at normal and you're at kid energy now, what we yeah, all were factual. at kid level. Accurate. So I think a lot of people do as adults are like, oh, you know, I say all the time, people say that like, oh, I wish I had the energy I had as a kid. You would wake up fully awake the world's ready and you're like everything's amazing right now you wake up and everything aches and you're like I need three more hours high energy ben requires high octane fuel are you going to talk about the cocaine epidemic in the 80s you always sideline when i'm trying to explain a thing you always want to sideline it with your little wiseacre cracks just saying, you said high energy. We're talking about the 80s. <laughs> it's not going to be Gatorade. I'm just wondering what's, where we're going. Ben, what is a kid's fuel of choice? You're a kid. What do you go to the pantry, the cupboard, the refrigerator? What are you going to pull out of there if you're a kid? You had full choice. What do you want? Uh, if, if it's about energy, I'm going to guess pixie sticks. You want sugar, right? For sure, yeah. You I mean, that's, that's a pixie want- stick. Sugar. Now, did you ever have a chance, like, you go visit a friend's house? Or did you ever get excited about the option of having different snacks than what were allowed at your house? So the most excited I ever got about breakfast cereal was, because I was a very boring breakfast cereal child, but when we went out for breakfast, like if you did brunch yeah. on Sunday, yeah, I remember at brunches, you could go and they had like the little mini single serving boxes and there'd be like 12 different types. And I'd be like, oh my God, this is where I'm going to yes. experiment like a mad scientist. Let's do this. So yeah, I got very excited. So this is all a great setup to say what I want to talk about next week. I want each of us to come up with a top list oh. of our favorite childhood sweet treats. Oh. And I want you to really think about the treats that you loved from childhood. Anything in a package that you couldn't wait to rip open and devour. I also want to talk about how 80s culture pushed these sugary treats into our hands and mouths, drove our parents up the wall. Fascinating. So not just cereal. Anything that was like a sugary... Anything a sugary treat. You know, we're talking candies, cookies, cereals, frozen treats, anything like that. And some of them are very iconic from the 80s. So I want you to also kind of look at it through that lens. But also, too, I want you to also think of this. What are like maybe some of your top gross out treats that people loved and you just never understood? Oh, yeah. With all of my fatal allergies, this is going to be a fascinating episode. <laughs> it is, you know, Pat Benatar <laughs> saying about love is a battlefield. And I grew up in a world where snacks were a battlefield. This is so true. This is going to be interesting. I like it. I like it. All right. Listeners, we're going to need your input as well. So we're going to be tapping into the class of 80s high with our quiz to find out what your favorites and maybe not so favorites 
sweet treats are next time on 80s High. Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.